Right now, what I do is, is I'm buying the properties. We are rehabbing a little bit more than we're wholesaling. Depends on how I feel. If I think it's a risky deal and I don't want to be in that deal, then I'll try to go ahead and wholesale that deal to someone else. All right, so today we're going to be talking with Leith Lovada and a lesson in all this that I want to emphasize right now in this introduction to Leith is that there is a thousand and one, maybe even a million and one ways to build the business the way you like it, to build your system, to build your buying and selling process in real estate. And Leith does it a very interesting way, I something that I, I've never seen before, although it's a very simple way. I mean, it's just kind of a, a no-brainer way to use agents into your buying process. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And Leith has a fascinating story. He's, we go into, we touch details into that. And he was born into poverty. He uh, had no running water when he was a kid, had to use an outhouse. And that's all in a, in a, in a book that he's promoting. And we're going to give you the, the URL at the end of that. But if you go to flippingboss.com and he gives you the exact URL, actually, you should probably go there instead of flippingboss.com to get his book. But anyway, his story is was fascinating to me and his process of using an agent. We're going to be talking about picking a market, picking a virtual market because he does virtual wholesaling as well, as well as rehabbing in his own town in Las Vegas and how to obtain a buyer's list. He gives some tips on that and what his predictions are coming up. He's experienced the, the last crash. He's been in multiple markets. He's experienced ups and downs. So he gives us his, his two cents on what's going to happen come 2021 uh, when there is a vaccine for COVID. So stay tuned to that one. And of course, if you're not on my email list where I give you reminders of these interviews, I give you extra interviews, I give you tidbits every day on marketing, business, and mindset, go to realestateaudios.com. All right, let's get to it. So Leith, in your book, you talk about kind of living, it's almost like you lived in a third world country. So <laughs> that's what it sounded like to me. Uh, I mean, you talk, there's no running water. You had to go out in the outhouse. Talk about that. How old were you and, and what was going through your mind? Uh, well, we left that kind of lifestyle when my dad and my mom separated. I was roughly about nine, nine years old. Not that it got dramatically different after that, but you know, we did move into a house that had running water. And then for a time, we moved into a, a mobile home on 30 acres and then you know, had to get the water and the septic and everything hooked up on that property as well. But yeah, from the time, you know, back to when I was a baby to when I was about nine years old, uh, yeah, the, you know, you could call the thing a makeshift chicken coop, really. I mean, it had cardboard walls and wood on the outside, but uh, I think it was only about 300 square foot or so. So it was a very small little house and that's where we had, we lived. And my parents, they, they liked living out in the country and you know, kind of off the grid, if you will. And so that was, they cut firewood to make a living at that point. And so, yeah, it was kind of rough going growing up in that scenario. And you didn't know how to read until much later, right? When you were a kid. Well, that's an interesting story too, honestly. So I guess, you know, parents being as protective as they are and they care about their kids and so on and so forth. And so my mom, I, I guess she had felt that the drug, the, uh, that the bus driver wasn't necessarily all there and he may be an alcoholic or so and such. So actually I had a couple older brothers and a twin brother at that point and a younger sister came along as well. 
but she decided not to have us go to school. And so uh, my older brothers did go to school. They're about 10 years older than me, but they did go to school. Unfortunately, me and my twin brother, we did not go to school for one reason or another. So when, when my mom did separate from my dad, we started going to school. So I ended up, unfortunately, starting way behind. And I didn't know how to read until really the fourth grade. And I w- when we were kept back into the third grade, and, and I myself had to go into more of the special ed class because I just didn't have any of the skills up to that point. And so I remain, remained in special education until... I think it was about the ninth grade. And then I just said, you know what, I'm done with this. Either I'm going to the regular classroom or I'm not going to school. So I kind of forced the issue and what got into change? the regular classes. What got you that decision to say, I'm done with this? Well, it was just, you know, the, there was kids doing one thing and then I was having to go to another thing. And unfortunately, the kids that were in the special education classes, they had a lot more problems than just being behind in their learning. They had some other things to deal with as well. So I didn't feel like I fit, fit in that at all. And I didn't want to be behind and have a, you know, a twin brother as well who was in regular class. Of course, I didn't really consider that as much as I did as I just couldn't interact and be with the other kids. I mean, I remember one time they were making, you know, for holiday season, ice candles. And there was a there was a young gal in there, a little girl in there, and she said, and they they said that's time for you to go to to your special class. And the little girl popped up and said, "Well, can he help? Well, can he finish making the candles and and with us and this and that?" And and the teacher said, "No, he's got to go now." So I remember getting really upset and, and angry outside of the special ed class before I had to go into the classroom because of that situation. But I didn't want to be in that classroom where I didn't fit in. And I just, I wanted to get out as soon as possible. And I, I worked my way out of it by just learning how to read and, and write and, and get caught up with everything. So yeah, school was quite the struggle in the beginning. And you held a, a job pretty, pretty early on too, kind of almost an entrepreneur or just mainly W2 job? Well, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I guess you could call it sort of entrepreneur. I mean, I, to begin with, I cut grass at the local resort that was about seven miles away from where we lived. And you got to remember, too, that, that it was only a population of about 6,000 people that lived in that town. And so there was a little resort that was about seven miles away. And I would ride my little, you know, my little five speed. It only had one speed <laughs> to the resort. And I, I ended up, I don't know how I did it, but I ended up finding I think we were down at the resort or something. I ended up finding a job and cutting grass for the resort. And so I'd cut grass every week for the resort and make about, I don't know, I think it was about 10 to $20. I was about 11, 11 years old, 10 years old uh, when I found that job. And so I started making some money at the resort and working. So, I mean, you might call it entrepreneurship at a, at a young age, but that would, that, because it wasn't W 2, that's for sure. And then, you know, the, the owner would give me, you know, a BLT and a Coke. And I just thought that was awesome. And I would sit there on the, you know, in the restaurant overlooking the lake there, it was a small little lake. And I just like, this is the life, you know, this is what I want. Cause you know, I was able to go into a little restaurant, if you will, and, and have a little sandwich and a Coke. And I'd never, I'd never been able to experience anything like that and have control over my environment like that. So it was really kind of nice. You know, you have young kids. Are you getting them to, and I'm asking this, you know, from parent to parent, 
are you teaching them to go out and start raising their own money, start doing some jobs for other people? Well, they're really pretty little right now. I'm, you know, we had them when I think I was 38, 39. So one of our, our oldest, uh, Lily, she's, she's about five this year. And then our little one is two and a half. He'll be three at Christmas time. So, but yeah, I mean, we're already teaching them about money and things like this. And, you know, the old saying, saying, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. So I've woven in the language of making a money tree, you know, money does grow on trees. You can, you know, you can make your little money tree through businesses and, it's funny. It's and it's interesting that there's always there's that money language. I mean, they go to school and talk about getting a job and W two and and it's funny. My little girl used to come to me and said, "I'm worried about making money. I don't know how to make money already." And so maybe that's because we talk about you know business and stuff at the house. So I said, "Don't worry about that. We're going to show you how to do that." And making money is is the easy part. We'll show you how to do that. So around my house, when we talk about money, we don't talk about, you know, money is the root of all evil and and things like this, because it's what you do with money that is evil or not evil. And if you properly educate your children from a young age and they don't have those mental blocks and barriers and belief systems that a lot of us grew up with all these beliefs that really don't do anything good for us, like the abundance mindset. I mean, you got to have an abundance mindset. Otherwise you feel that there's no money out there. Well, there's tons of money out there. You just have to bring value to the table. And so, you know, those are the things that I'm instilling with them. And I'm going to have them creating online businesses and helping me and my business just as soon as they're able. And right now, I mean, I think there's, they can be ready to do that younger than most would think. So we will be instilling that in them work ethic and, and all of that. And what led you then to real estate? Initially, I saw that sales was, I, I did get into the, I, I was an entrepreneur, or W-2 work for a while. You know, I worked at some department stores while I was going through high school. And in college, I got into personal training. I, I taught myself how to be a personal trainer, read the books, took the exams. And so I was personal training in, in college and then started doing some entrepreneurship through really through becoming my, you know, being a private contractor as a personal trainer outside of the typical gyms, like a 24-hour fitness or a gold gyms or something like that. And so I started doing that. And then, you know, I was working all ends of the hours. I didn't know it then, but, you know, I felt like it wasn't a scalable business. I just knew that me working every hour of the day, you know, personal training someone was not going to get me where I wanted to go. So, you know, it was initially real estate loans. And then I got my real estate agent license. And there was some training that I was looking at at the time about you need to know how to finance real estate if you're ever going to be an investor. So I, that's why I got into, started to get into the, the loan officer end of it and then the account executive portion of it. And then I started, okay, well, how do we find these deals when the market fell out? You know, how do we find these deals? And that was back in 2008. Well, I had my license in 2005 and was doing some real estate, but I moved completely over to real estate in 2000, even 2007, when the market crashed back then and started specifically going towards the real estate after I learned how to finance it. But that financing, little did I know, was institutional financing. It really had nothing to do with financing as far as soft money, hard money, private money, anything like that. I would learn that later on. And then I specialized in short sales and started providing 
doing a lot of short sales and negotiating those for investors and did really well in the short sale markets and started learning how to market and get people to pick up the phone and call me rather than prospect. Got into marketing uh, versus prospecting. And, and I little did I know I was doing that in the, in the loan account executive uh, wholesaling loans, basically, was what I was doing. After I initially did loans, I was selling. I was selling uh, loans to other loan officers, and what I was doing, I was making really good money at it. And little did I know, through my faxes before they made those illegal, I was essentially sending out direct response marketing to loan officers, and did rather well in that. And then uh, the market completely fell out. And like I said, I went into real estate and then specialized in short sales and use my loan knowledge to negotiate short sales and really good prices on short sales. And then, you know, the short sales started to wane away quite, quite a bit. And I was doing uh, real estate flipping and investing while I was doing that. But then I just went strictly into the rehabbing business and then continued to grow into rehabbing, wholesaling, seller financing through the whole time. I'd done some lease options prior to that as well. And so... I have a myriad of different skills, if you will. I have a certain set of skills, right? Just through the years of sales, copywriting, marketing, real estate, seller finance, short sales, that sort of thing, bank-owned properties, that sort of thing. And what did you learn from that crash? Was it a hard, difficult time to bounce right back? And did you start wholesaling right away? And was it difficult to actually start getting some traction and start creating a real business? And I assume you kind of do it virtually, remotely. You kind of stepped away. From what I understand, you have a lot of VAs in place. You have a pretty big system when it comes to wholesaling. Well, yeah, it's been kind of an evolution. Sometimes we'll build, you know, ourselves this golden prison, if you will, and we build on these all these team members and and all these systems, and we try this and we try that, and unfortunately, we have to put a stop to it. And see, you know, what's the what's the twenty percent that's getting us the eighty percent of results? And so I, you know, I'm a big believer in building your life around your business and not your business around your life. So anything I do and I've done for the last many years here is is really keep that in mind when I do anything. Because the most important thing to me is to have time with my wife, to have time with my kids. And so I almost walk away from money because in a lot of ways, because I'm not willing to grow my business in this way, where I'm building, you know, I have to convert my life around my business. So I've really focused in on that for many years. So there's not a time that I ever actually go into a property anymore. It's all, you can call it virtual, but really it's just properly delegated, systematized, with people who I've brought on as either contractors or employees. Most of them are contractors now. I have real estate agents who work for me, with me out, out in the field, I guess you would say, where you know they provide the comparables to properties anywhere that I want to be. And with you know the new technology nowadays with Facebook and being able to find help and find information and target properties, really the sky is the limit. So yeah, I've had really big teams and then I've had, you know, not so many people working for me because I've scaled it down to more system systematized processes and I've been able to really do increase the the amount of return per each deal based on how I buy and decrease the amount of involvement with the different, you know, hands in the pot if you will with 
with uh, splitting with a, you know, a partner, several partners, and then having to give big splits to people that are working for you. I, you know, rather than paying somebody 10% of the deal, I'll say, hey, I need you to go walk the property and I want a full set of pictures, a couple hundred pictures, get out, and then they'll give those to me for $100, $150. And then we get on a Skype and do a screen share. And then we go over the value of the property on the local multiple listing system until we build a really strong partnership. And we might be a, a, be able to go a, and be an administrative assistant or something for that agent to where we can both benefit from the research on the multiple listing system. So I've really built a way of doing business that really scales things down. And there's some people out there, for example, they'll wire money by going down to the bank, right? I mean, that is such a huge waste of time. 30 minutes down, 30 minutes back. Why would I ever do that to send one wire, even multiple wires? I condensed that process. I looked at it once upon a time and I said, this has taken me almost 10, 15 hours a week. And I shrunk it down to like 10 minutes. You know, I can send a wire out in two minutes or paying your contractor if it's rehab to do the rehab, the same thing. I, I don't like checks. I don't send checks anymore. Nowadays, it's Zelle or it's a wire. It's a cost of doing business for me. And so, I mean, some guys will do that all, you know, they'll run across town to give the contractor the check. You know, if the contractor doesn't have a bank account, then I'm sorry, we can't do business together. You know, and so your success is indirectly proportional to what you make unacceptable in your business. And I choose to make a lot of things that don't get me re- good results unacceptable. And that's, that's where my growth comes from. Awesome. And it doesn't sound like you have employees, or maybe you do, but more like you operate per contractors coming in. Well, I, I have a mixture, right? So before I had a lot more employees, then I turned those into contractors and I turned those into scalable contractors where, whereby... I have multiple contractors, backup contractors to where now I can scale and they all know what they're doing. And we have training and systems to keep those, get those people educated and onboarded. And so that, you know, it's not their main business, but it could be because we make them a lot of money. You know, a real estate agent working for us could easily make over probably, I don't know, uh, with with listings and stuff like that. I, I think a really solid agent could do over $100,000 a year without trying very hard in one of, one of the markets we're in. And that would only be a piece of their business. So I have multitudes of different people I use for different stuff. What do you mean by a scalable contractor? Can you explain that a little bit? Well, let's say you want to open up 10 markets and you have to go find boots on the ground out there to help you or support you. You can't scale unless you have that. So what I do is Facebook is wonderful nowadays with the groups. You can actually find anybody you want to work in your business nowadays. And you just have to put it out there what you what you want. And you have to be very diligent about knowing what you want. And then some people don't want to pay somebody until you get a result. Well, how about then? You know, they, a lot of people don't want to do something until you pay them. <laughs> so... Um, you know, if I have a property I think is a deal and I need a, an agent to help me with the due diligence, I'll pay $100, $150 to have somebody go out. That's better than a BPO because I get to actually get into the MLS with the agent on a screen share and view the property and talk with an agent who knows the area. So that allows me to be very scalable. And if I bring on multiple agents in an area, one agent isn't available, I just go on to the next. I love that. And so when you talked about that agent 
possibly making 100,000. That agent you're also going to use for the listing and what else would, how else are going to work with you besides the uh, front end of getting you MLS access, of going to the property, doing a walkthrough. That's what I'm assuming they're doing. They're capturing video. Are they doing the marketing for you as well? Well, yeah. I mean, I got this, this great agent over in Cincinnati now that uh, I had one gal working for me. I had another wholesaler. Ended up asking the one wholesaler, the rehabber, which I was wholesaling to. And I had to let go one of the agents. And so happened that she knew somebody else. And now she's doing a lot of the heavy lifting because I I can trust that she knows what she's doing. So yeah, the the way that they make money, if that's really the crux of the question is, yeah, on the front end, they would make $100, $150 is what we pay them for basically a set of pictures and a BPO. So we tell them what kind of pictures we want. Then if I don't end up buying the property, then I can toss it to them for a listing. And now they get a listing that we split. I'm a licensed agent, so I can take a referral fee for that. And then, yeah, on my properties, I get a discount to list my properties. I'm not going to pay anybody more than 1% to list my properties. I just figure, you know, if I pay them a 1%, then I, I don't feel too bad about having them do a, a good amount of legwork. And, it, you know, everybody wins with that. I mean, now I could use a flat fee brokerage for a couple hundred bucks in the area to do that. And then we could take all the offers and do that. But there's certain things like, you know, the pool was was getting low and this agent let me know, hey, I can go shut off the pump for you. She actually wiped everything down, staged it a little bit, got all the pictures taken. And she knows that the relationship that we're going to build is going to be a good relationship because I'm I'm a real investor and she's a real agent. And so she'd rather get 10, 20 deals from me than just try to make a lion's share on one deal. So it's all beneficial. And so that's how we present it to the agents. And it's it's been really very, very successful. Not every agent's going to bite. Some agents say, well, that's not enough. I usually want $300. Okay, well, then you're not the agent for me then. And you mentioned how uh, you, you don't really walk the property, visit the property much. How do you estimate those repairs then? First of all, I'm really good at it, but and I have a way that I, I can show people to be good at it too. Really, it's, it's not really, I don't get down to the nitty gritty of it. I've done enough properties to where now I have a rule of thumb kind of model. And what we do is, is we just, we multiply times the price per square footage. So I'm um, kind of being smart with you there a little bit, but we, we do a price per square foot on a lot of these properties, but I do know this property is 1200 square foot. If I completely remodeled it, it would, let's say, be 55, 60,000 if there's a roof problem or a basement problem or something like that. So that's why we have the agent get a bunch of pictures, 200 plus pictures. So I had one agent give me 450 pictures after I gave him the list of everything I actually wanted to see. And that was very helpful. 450 sounds like a lot. Well, we only need 24. No, I don't. I need to see everything in that property. If you do a video virtual tour, whatever you provide me is going to help me decide what needs to be done on that property. Do some things get missed? Sure. But we do build in a little bit of pad here and there. But when it comes to wholesaling, do you really have to be, I mean, you need to be accurate, but everybody has a different perception of what that property's worth. Everybody has a different perception of what the rehab costs are going to be or what they will be based on the contractor that they have. And everybody's paying a different cost of money too. So a lot of times, if you get with the right buyers, what will happen is, is they'll have their own money or they have this, this HELOC that they're not really paying any money on, very little bit of money, or they have cash, and then they actually do the work themselves, and they may feel that the property's worth more than I do. So if you add all that up, 
that might be thirty or forty thousand dollars more than what I would pay for the property. So I'll put it under contract using my estimates. And what a lot of new people don't understand is that just because this is what you think it is doesn't mean that somebody else is going to think it's the same thing. So you do your best to estimate it. And I, and I have this formula that I estimate everything out. It's kind of a worst case formula. And then I go ahead and I ask my buyers for a best case buy. Now, not to make me look like I'm not a bright guy, right? Because if you ask a lot of these uh, wholesalers out there will just ask ridiculously, you know, they want a $50,000 spread on a $400,000 property. If it needs any rehab at all, I mean, you can't even pay commissions on the buy and the sell and hard money at that. So that's just a little ridiculous. You're not even going to really want to price that out as a rehabber. So understanding you've got to make the numbers work for somebody. If I think it's worth 460, but somebody else might be worth 480, I'm going to put up that the ARV is 480. If I think that somebody could come in without any hard money, then I'm going to reduce my hard money cost and make my profit or my 20 or $30,000 assignment fee. And at least somebody can see where I came up with those numbers. So don't get so bound up in what do you think the rehab dollars are on this property? You don't really have to be, I mean, you need to be in the ballpark, but it doesn't have to be the exact dollar amount because there's so many variables out there. Hey, real quick, I want to introduce you to my free daily newsletter where I give out free daily tips to real estate investing strategies, marketing, and sales techniques to keep you, the part-time investor, moving forward every day. So head on over to realestateaudios.com and you'll get a free report along with that free daily newsletter. Are you doing the the BPOs before or after? Are you sending your agent a before or after you have it on under contract? You know, it, it varies. Sometimes if I think it's a hot deal, we put it under contract right away over the phone. But, and that's the other thing is anymore, it's the same thing meet in person or over the phone. You know, if you're good, you can do it over the phone. If you're not so good, you're going to have more results face to face. But it's really all the same technique, right? You can build rapport and face to face. You can build rapport over the phone. And it's just walking the dog with them over the phone. And so we close now everything over the phone. And so really some of these walkthroughs and some of this stuff is more for the seller's benefit than it is for mine, right? Because they want to say, well, you haven't walked the property. How can you give me a purchase price? Well, I guess I can't. Let me send somebody out there. But I don't say it that way. I just know a little bit by experience, those people who are going to be based on personality who need me to get somebody in there before and those people that don't really need it, which are the more motivated, flexible people with the right personality type, which I'll just say, hey, this is a simple one. I can make you an offer right here today and be dead straight accurate based on what you're telling me. Now, if something comes up out of the blue and you're lying to me about something, well, I can't, I can't do anything about that. Then when I come back to them, if there is anything, they're, then they're going to tell me everything. A lot of times they'll just you know, unleash whatever they've left out and I'll just make an offer on the phone. So I answer your question. Most folks ask that question because they're worried about a real estate agent or somebody typing the deal, right? Taking the deal from them. That's probably why you, did you ask me that question because of that? You're worried about Uh, the agent taking the deal? I'm interested in your process because, you know, you got a pretty elaborate process system in place and, and I'm interested in how, on how everything tied together. Now, you, you mentioned 10 markets, choosing 10 markets. To me, that's mind boggling to actually just say, I'm going to go and do 10 markets right now. Well, what is the prep work required to find, to find a market, first of all? 
Well, you know, when it varies, we pull back from some markets, we'll add on some markets. I'm not in a full 10 markets right now. It just varies on the ebbs and flows of marking or what's happening in that in that area or, you know, have bottlenecks occurred that we need to pull back from or do we have a myriad of different properties that we're trying to get rid of. But yeah, we've opened up many markets all at once at the same time. The due diligence that goes into a market is essentially, I would say, pick a market. If your market's doing well, pick a market that closely resembles your market or you've lived in and understand. So that, I mean, that's a loaded question, really, because you do have to understand the market. You do have to understand, like take, for instance, if we're in Cincinnati or one of these, you know, Milwaukee or Virginia even, or uh, Ohio in general, these places, they have their little endosyncrasies about them, right? So it, like they have basements, basements. And a lot of times you can't find out what comps, comparable properties are selling for in those areas because they do have basements and the agents don't even know how to get the values themselves. So you have to educate the agent when you talk to them. So you have to understand how much it costs to do drain tiles so that the basement doesn't leak anymore or how much to upgrade that. So you need to pick something that you know and understand. And so going in a place like that would probably be a mistake. But if you're in, let's say, Las Vegas, like where I'm at, a lot of people refer to them as desert flips. I mean, you have a concrete slab and it's stucco on that. And it's a fairly easy thing. So if you started out in Las Vegas, well, Arizona is pretty similar to that. Tucson's pretty similar to that. Lots of places in California are similar to that. Reno is similar to that. So what's similar to what you're already used to? And a lot of people, you ever heard the story acres and acres of diamonds? A lot of people want to go outside their own backyard and find out, you know, the grass is greener, but it's all too often harder to chew. So stay in your own backyard. I mean, if you don't have a huge amount of inventory or a, a huge amount of population, yeah, it might be a little bit difficult to run down the deals, but don't look outside your, uh, your backyard. There's one guy, he's, he's doing a ton of business in 400,000, I think it's a 400,000 population. Now, I recommend if you go somewhere else, don't go anywhere that doesn't have over a million people or doesn't have at least a million people just because it's you want a good number, a good size, you know, but you have to do your due diligence and your research. And that's a bit, again, a very loaded question because you got to be careful. You got to get used to doing business somewhere and then take that somewhere and apply it to other areas. Don't get too big for your britches and think that you can go anywhere because now you're the king of the road in this little market. You'll get your buns handled to you if you go to a place that's really new to you. There's been a lot of very experienced people who've learned that lesson the hard way, including myself. You know, so don't branch out too fast and too far without knowing knowing this business and knowing an area specifically well. So I always say start with one and get it done and then move on to something very similar. And that's how I branched out. I picked out similar markets in a lot of respects and then very different in some respects than I knew I had a learning curve, but I didn't bite off more than I could chew. And how many markets have you operated the most markets you've operated at one time? I would say haphazardly, probably at one time, about seven or eight. Was that difficult orchestrating all those contractors, all those people together? And, and, and have you narrowed down, scaled down because of, because of the amount of people you're managing? 
I'd use this as a rule of thumb just because it becomes a little bit too burdensome to do rehabs and all those different. And now there's companies out there that do it and they've got a system for it and they've grown their business. And I've decided not to do that because, like I said, I want to grow my business in a certain way. So that's really not my goal is to rehab in all these different areas. So if I notice something going on with marketing, like right now is a good example, you know, when you have a political window, it doesn't matter if it's a presidential election or a non-presidential election or every place has a political window. And that just means that some of the marketing that you're doing is going to be overrun by the political marketing. So you in one area might have a political window that's just hammering you to death. And then if you go into another area, that's not a problem. Or you might have a situation where there's there's a brand new national buyer that's buying stuff at a really large, you know, uh, a very small spread to buy up the market. And so it really depends on what's going on in each market. So I will move with the ebbs and flows of where I think my my marketing dollar is going to go the farthest. And so I pick those markets again that are very similar, but they're different geographically speaking to where I can bob and weave, if you will. I can pull back from one or two and then go stronger in another one or two. But I, like I said, the remote markets, to answer your question, the remote markets, I don't really do a whole lot of rehabbing in because it creates a ton of bottlenecks. Those properties will take longer to get on the market and you have to get at a deeper discount. But when I do get properties that I think are fairly simple and that won't create a whole bunch of bottlenecks, then I'll go ahead, especially if there's a big amount of money to be made on those, then I'll go ahead and take those down myself, especially if I'm in a market where those rehabbers may not be knowing the values or the true value of the property or I can't find one, but typically we find them but I maybe I'm just not getting enough for the property that I think I'll go ahead and take down that property and rehab that property. But generally speaking, I try to stay more local or to the areas I really know and understand where I have the actual really good contractors I can trust or you know, permitting has a, a bit to do with it. The more permitting that's required in a specific area will determine whether or not I flip in that area or not. So a lot of times we'll do a fair amount of rehabbing in a local area, and then we'll do strictly wholesaling in a remote area. And that's been that's proven to be uh, the model that I like to, to do rather than a whole bunch of rehabbing in this and that market. And we've moved into more rehabbing in the past, and then we've come back to more uh, or wholesaling, then we've come back to more rehabbing. So bobbing and weaving that way a little bit helps you to move with the market and what's going on with the market too. Now, you don't have to do that, but I see it because I have that skill set. I can shift from one to the other and do a little bit. If I feel that there's more risk in the market, I'll go into more of a wholesaling model. If I feel and understand where the market's moving and when it will get there, then I'll go back to the rehabbing and make some more profits that way. I had one, for instance, that I, I was only going to make $30,000. Well, say only. We were going to make $30,000 on the wholesale. And I felt that the value was there and the market was going to go higher. I think we ended up making $105,000 on that rehab. Sure, I could have wholesaled it, but I couldn't get anybody to understand or see it, see the light my way. And so I went ahead and took that one down and it made me an extra $75,000. And what do you see the market right now? It's October 2020. What are you changing uh, with your own business right now? 
Well, you know, you got to keep your finger on the pulse right now. I mean, it's, uh, it's a wily beast out there. I, I, you know, I don't think a lot of folks understand that, you know, I believe after this vaccine comes out that it's every man for himself. You know, by that, I mean, what's happening right now is that there's been a lot of people pull back from listing their properties. So inventory is very low right now, but the market isn't necessarily increasing to a large degree. Now it's maybe bumping up a little bit or staying the same, but think about that. If let's say you had 58% of everybody pull their listing off the market, now the inventory is low and yet now the market isn't increasing, but it's holding strong. Well, guess what? You don't have that many buyers in the market. You just have a decrease of seller and an increase of buyer. So what's happening is, is that this lack of supply is propping up the market. If I was a buyer out there right now who was buying to live in a house, there'd be no way in, in God's green earth that I'd be buying a property because it's overpriced right now, right? And I hate to say that because I'm in the business of buying and selling. But you know what? If somebody believes something, it's not my job to convince them. And the, the thing is, is that they're not going to be convinced anyway. They're just going to go buy from somebody else. So at least I can provide them with a good product. Now, depending on how long they want to stay there or if they're going to sell or get divorced in a couple of years, yeah, it might be pretty traumatic, right? So it depends on what the outcome of that buyer is. So obviously, we try to never do anybody harm. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what it's going to be. I've been proven wrong a lot. But all I can do is make the best decision that I can at any given moment. And right now, what I do is, is I'm buying the properties. We are rehabbing a little bit more than we're wholesaling. Depends on how I feel. If I think it's a risky deal and I don't want to be in that deal, then I'll try to go ahead and just wholesale that deal to someone else. Definitely out of state, we're wholesaling everything in the state that, you know, was, let's say our corporate office is in or that's local. We feel good about We have all of our crews and everything for rehabbing. I'll go ahead and buy those because I know that I can rehab them and I can put them back on the market within just 30 days, be under contract in five, be out of that thing in under 90 days with the money in my pocket. Now, as soon as I get the little inkling that that's not the case, I can't make it 90 days, then I'm going to drop the prices and I'm going to get out as fast as I can on the stuff I'm holding. And I feel like that towards the end of next year, that the market will end up going down. And I believe that because the as soon as the vaccine comes out, as soon as people move on from COVID and this pandemic, what's going to happen is, is there's going to be more inventory hitting the market. Not only that, there's a lot of people in forbearance. There's a moratorium on the rentals. And there's going to be a lot of investors potentially in trouble, too. We're going to see a lot of short sales, a lot of bank-owned stuff come back on the market. Now, to what degree? Really, no one really knows because... If they make certain situations available to the borrowers, forbearances and loan modifications, and we can't really, really understand or know that. We can look at the past, but there will be more inventory coming back on the market. And remember that all this pent-up inventory that isn't getting sold now, when that's released to the market, that's going to have an impact on values. And you don't want to be an investor holding 30 flips necessarily that all are going to take 90 or 60 or 120 days. I said 60, but I really meant 90 or 120 days. And some people might even take six months to a year. And that's just not where you want to be. So taking on big rehabs right now and taking on rehabs that are further than 60 to 90 days out for me is not something I'm doing. And if I feel like 
it's too risky of a deal for me. There might be another investor who will pick that deal up. I mean, I let several go that they still made 40000 and I made thirty. Those would have been a $70,000 profit for me. Did I lose money? Maybe. But they, fe they felt like that they would make money, and they did. I felt like I wouldn't. And so I, I, my risk tolerance was such that I let that go. Do I feel bad about it? Not at all. Because I may lose money uh, that way, which I don't think it's losing money. It's just abiding by my code of what I'm going to buy and not buy. And I'll make plenty of money on the other ones. So you can't know 100% for sure, but you got to go with your gut and your instinct. And I always buy on best case or worst case scenario and sell on best case. And that has served me well. I draw a line in the sand. This is the line that I'm not willing to go past. If the seller really wants me to, to buy it, and I think I can potentially go ahead and wholesale that, so we are in the business of wholesaling, then we'll go ahead and put it under contract. But I'm completely honest and forefront, upfront with that seller. And I say, hey, I can't buy it but I have other investors will, and you're not going to get anybody else who will give you this offer like I'm going to give you. I'll go shop it for 10, five days. Just give me a few days and I'll go give it to my list. I'll make a little bit of money on it, but I'll get you a buyer. And that we've had a tremendous amount of success with that. And I've been able to wholesale properties like that for $15,000, $20,000, more than I ever thought possible. And then we come out smelling like a rose. And so you're saying you use the agent to help wholesale that property? Is, is that how I understood that correctly? Some people will. I don't use the agents to necessarily wholesale my property because it's, I use the agents to list the property if I'm going to rehab it. Otherwise, there's just too many ways to track down cash buyers for my wholesale deals. So I, I don't use agents on my wholesale. Now, there's some people who do. And you can, but I think it's it's dipping too many hands in the pot. It's not necessary if you know how to build a good cash buyers list. I mean, I've built a hunt in a territory that I knew nothing about. I've been able to build 100, 200 cash buyers almost overnight and have that thing uh, wholesaled within 24 to 48 hours, sometimes less. So there's no reason for me to bring in an agent on our wholesale deals. Where do you find these better? And I'm assuming you're, you're selling these contracts at top dollar. So these are good buyers, good cash buyers. So where do you find these, these better buyers? <laughs> well, I do have a program that teaches folks how to do this. And there is some skill to it. So I hesitate a little bit. But to answer your question, Facebook groups is a wonderful place. You can search out wholesale, wholesale uh, groups. And you can become a member of those and you can look for your cash buyers. You can post for people who are interested in buying. You can look at comments and likes and feedback. There are a few little caveats that you've, you've got to know. First of all, they've got to think you're real and you know what you're talking about. And there's ways to do that and position yourself with your own Facebook account, personal account. And so you've got to know how to talk to these folks. You've got to know how to ask them the right questions. Now, we have a lot of people out there who are teaching and doing micro-flipping, co-wholesaling. There's another company out there that I think it's called Astro Flipping, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it at all. It's a different model, but some people aren't doing what they should be doing on that situation. They'll go out there, they'll find a property, and then they shop it before they even have it locked up and under contract. And that is not, in my neck of the woods, legal, and I don't know any place that it is. 
to shop a property that you don't have a contract on. And so there's people out there doing that. So you got to be careful because when you go to find these cash buyers on Facebook groups, you might bump into somebody who's doing just that. And now you go under contract with them and it's egg in your face at the closing table, meaning that they don't close and now your seller's in a bad spot and so are you. So there's got to be an intent to close these transactions for these sellers or in some areas you can get yourself in real, real hot water if you're doing things that isn't above board. And that's that's what you got to be careful of. And so you've got to either hook up with somebody who knows how to do it or be very, very careful and make sure that you're doing your due diligence on your buyers. But there is a world of cash buyers out there right on Facebook free for the picking any moment of the day that you can wholesale your deals to. Do you feel that the with the COVID, some of these sophisticated investors have kind of backed out from buying right now? Some have, some did, and some got back in. Some are going like gangbusters without any brakes on. You've got the, the gamut out there, right? The gamut, or you, you know, you've got international buyers that are coming back in. They pulled back. You've got a lot of people who feel one way or this way or that way. You know, and when we're in the real estate, like the book we were talking about, the book that I just released, you know, it's not really our position or our responsibility to figure out where the market's going to go. It's our responsibility really to put the property under contract for the best price we can, believe that we can close, and then go find us a rehab buyer to purchase that property to make us a profit, the seller a profit, and even the rehabber a profit and win. So we don't have to necessarily predict where the market's going all of the time in wholesale. Just get the best deal you can. If it doesn't turn out to be a deal that you can wholesale, then you're going to have to go back in and try to renegotiate. If you can't renegotiate, then you're going to have to let the deal go. And I say the sooner the better because you don't want to get yourself in trouble with that seller. That's a fear of a lot of people coming into the game is, is putting in a contract and having to back out. And then there's the other side of that, the more of the unethical where people are just putting offers in, high offers just to get the contract in and deliberately coming back to bring it so to bring it down. So I don't know, what do you say about yeah. that? Well, I bumped into somebody in Cincinnati. God, it was pretty cutthroat. I mean, the guy had come in $60,000 above where this thing should be selling for. And then he was dragging it out, dragging it out, kept trying to reduce, kept trying to reduce. And this guy was one that was very, very litigious. And so anybody that would lock in a deal above or beyond him, he was going to try to sue. So just a dirty animal, really. And those people aren't going to last for very long, I can tell you that. But I don't agree with that. I, I think if you're honest with the seller and you know what to tell, hey, the, this is what it's selling for, and this is how much work it needs, and I've got to make some profit here, then I think that honesty is the best policy and I'm not one to put somebody under contract with to see if I can't reduce them down the road and make it into a deal. Now, if I feel that it's for the good of all, I might go a little high knowing that they do have flexibility. They're just not willing to give me flexibility now, but I will then put them under agreement and do that sooner than later so we don't put them in a bad position. But that's not something that I really recommend doing or even practice unless I feel it's for the seller's good, unless there's somebody out there that I know is bad in the market that they're going to go with and that's what they do. And I know that they're going to do that and drag it on and put them in a bad position at the end. I might try to save them from themselves and do that sooner than later 
rather than let them drag out. But it would be because I felt that that was the best for all parties, not not just for me. You see what I mean? There's a difference. Yeah, yeah, big difference. Yeah, you mentioned your program for finding uh, cash buyers. How do people, uh, if they're interested in, interested in getting into that program, how do they reach out for you, to you for that? Well, the best way is to go to my website, Lake Levada Inner Circle. We have the uh, the book available, my book available there for download, and then llinnercircle.com forward slash free book. That's the direct link to the the, the free book download. And then, uh, of course, the website there where you can look at our some testimonials from our clients and you know, we offer coaching and mentorship and, and that sort of thing. So that's really the best way. It'll be in the show okay, notes cool. too, your URL. So, yeah. Okay, perfect. I think that's a wrap. We've been, I mean, you gave a ton of info here and uh, I appreciate you being on the show. Again, um, what's your URL so people can reach out to you? Uh, it's LakeLevadaInnerCircle.com. And they can get the free book there or go to LL Inner Circle, a little bit shorter, LLInnerCircle.com forward slash free book. And then check us out on the groups, same name and uh, the podcast as well. Just search for my name and you'll, you'll find me. I highly recommend the audio book and the book. It was a fascinating story. It really was your introduction, your whole life. And uh, it gives a step-by-step guide into, into the entire wholesaling business. So, all right, I appreciate you being on the show, man. appreciate being here. Thank you. All right. That's another episode in the can and stay tuned for the next one and my marketing tidbits every single week on the Deals Today podcast. Make sure you subscribe, you rate it, you review it, and you share it, please. It keeps me going with this. It gets more guests on the show. And if you haven't, if you're not on my email list, go to realestateaudios.com, subscribe there to get onto my daily newsletter where I give daily mindset, business, marketing, copywriting tips, all for real estate investors right there and any special gifts I'm giving away. Go on to realestateaudios.com.